The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on December 20th, 2020, and we're joined today, as always, by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam, how's it going? Pretty good, Dave. I'm uh, very excited in the lead up to Christmas. That's that. That's excellent. So, so am I. Are you having a happy Christmas season? So far, so good, man. No complaints. Excellent. Well, I hope uh, I hope that you see lots of uh, Christmas presents from Santa under your tree on Christmas morning. You too, Dave. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. We are we are thrilled today uh, to welcome today's guests onto the podcast. Uh, Jessica Littlewood uh, served as the NDP MLA for Fort Saskatchewan Vegerville from. 2015 to 2019 and during that time served as the parliamentary secretary to the minister of economic development for trade and small business that is a mouthful and uh, welcome to the podcast jessica was, yeah <laughs> thank you so much for having me i'm super excited and, and and also joining us on the podcast is matt solberg matt is a director at new west public affairs and previously served as director of communications for the united conservative party welcome to the podcast matt Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's thrilled. This should this should be a lot of fun because today we are doing our we are releasing the results, uh, our annual year-end podcast, releasing the results of the best of Alberta politics 2020 survey. I would like to thank the more than 1,600 people who voted in the second round of voting, the more than 750 wow. people who submitted their choices in the first round. Um, many of you have, who have done this podcast or have done this survey before, I think this is our fourth or fifth year doing the survey. We, for the first, uh, I think the first five days, we throw it open and we let people uh, go onto our survey and submit their choices for the best uh, of Alberta politics in a number of categories, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Uh, and then after four or five days, we close voting and we go into the second round of voting we take the top three from each category top four in some cases uh and uh and then we put it to a direct vote uh so we are uh, we're thrilled to release the results more than 1600 people voted in the in, for the for, for the various top three uh choices so we're just gonna dive right in i'm gonna announce the results of the survey and we're gonna ask our our two uh special guests to uh to respond to the results and offer their who, who they uh, offer their choices, their 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 picks for who the uh, the best of Alberta pol politics are in in 2020. So, drum roll, please. I'm sure Adam will add some sound effects in afterward. <laughs> who is the best MLA of 2020? Well, there were three 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 candidates who made it to the top, and this may uh, may give you a little bit of an idea of who was filling out this survey, at least in the first round. Uh, Rachel Notley, Janice Irwin, and David Shepard, all three NDP MLAs from Edmonton. And the winner of Best MLA for 2020 is Janice Irwin, the MLA, NDP MLA for Edmonton Highlands Norwood, who also happens to be my MLA. Uh, but that's not why she won. She won because obviously <laughs> she, she, she has a following and, uh, and a lot of people voted for her. So congratulations, Janice Irwin, for winning Best MLA of 2020. Janice has a, yeah, Janice has a huge following. She's established herself not just as a sort of community outreach organizer, but she's the only uh, member of the LGBTQ2S plus community. And uh, my gosh, if you see her on a Sunday, she's like picking up garbage in the in the community and, uh, you know, handing out hot chocolate. So like, she's just a, a total rock star. 
yeah, you know what? I, I, I have to agree uh, on, on that point. I mean, Janice is also my MLA here in, in Highlands Norwood. And uh, it doesn't seem to matter where I go in the riding. Um, she's either there or she has, you know, just been there and I've missed her. Uh, so she's very well known in the in the riding. Um, I also think she's, you know, even in her role as a, as critic, uh, she's, you know, she's performed well, and I think that people are are taking notice of that. So, I mean, I'll be honest, Dave. I was one of I think maybe three homes uh, in the neighborhood that had a, uh, a UCP lawn sign uh, <laughs> in the riding last election. Uh, but even I can see that that Janice works incredibly hard, and uh, and that's you know reflected uh, in part by the results of this vote. Absolutely. So going. So congratulations, Janice. Now, but now to uh, to Jessica and Matt. Who 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 are you? Can you share who your picks would be for uh, for best of Alberta or best best MLA of twenty twenty? If if you uh, if it's not Janice, I guess I should say. <laughs> well, if I had to go first, I mean, your other options are pretty great. I mean, Rachel obviously has been serving her community for what since two thousand and eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, and uh, you know, obviously, she has done an incredible job locking down this constituency uh, for the NDP. Um, but David Shepard has been a massive uh, mental health advocate since, you know, since I got to know him back in like 2014. So um, he's created a lot of space to have like really difficult conversations about mental health. Um, and also he, you know, he came out and spoke at the Black Lives Matter uh, rally that was back in the summer, and um, and he's been a huge advocate on innovation and technology. So I think there's a reason why he was one of the three that had the most people submitting names. Excellent, thank you, Matt. Well, I know uh, 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 my particular uh, uh, party stripe was not very well represented in this, uh, uh, or at least in the results of this poll. Um, but, you know, I, I have to say, like, you know, I think in terms of, of uh, their role as an MLA, I mean, Janice Irwin seems like an appropriate pick. Um, but I guess, you know, there's, there's other MLAs who um, have done an exceptional job, I would say. An example uh, from the conservative benches, I think, would be Jeremy Nixon, who has, uh, you know, he's been quietly... Uh, performing a number of different duties that uh, the premier and government have asked him to do, whether it's the uh, the tobacco and vaping review, uh, and even just just um, you know representing the the nonprofit and charitable sector uh, and sort of the plight that many of these uh, organizations are going through uh, during COVID. Uh, I'd say Jeremy's been a pretty strong voice on those files. Okay, um, yeah, I think he was also involved with the affordable housing review they just did. Yeah, and he's the brother of Environment oh. Minister Jason Jason Nixon, and I think that's why I think he's the I think he might be like the I think it's only the second time there's been, or maybe it might be the first 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 or second time there's been like actual siblings that have served served together at the same time in the legislature. Um, which I mean, anybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm 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 fascinated with, with weird uh, weird facts about Alberta politics. So uh, I think that might be that might be one of them. I have so, to say that I find political dynasties kind of um, bizarre and not incredibly democratic. I have to say, it feels a little bit like kingmaking in you know in a way you know sort of uh, it has 
has shades of monarchy uh, attached to it, in my opinion. Um, and I think Jeremy's in a tough spot because like his brother has, uh, has a reputation that is dogged by like firing a, a single mother uh, over a, a, a sexual assault allegation um, that was, you know, proven in court. So it wasn't just an allegation. Um, but also, you know, the, uh, his, his tussles with, uh, with law enforcement in, uh, in, in the parks, you know, uh, portfolio that he is now the minister of is, is something that seems very problematic in my opinion. <laughs> well, I would just say if, if we're guilty of the sins of our brothers, then, uh, I may be in some big trouble myself. So I, I do think that, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, Jeremy is, is uh, sort of cutting his own path uh, through. Um, you know, he he does have a uh, a last name that um, you know will certainly come with uh, with opinions. But uh, I do think that when it comes to standing on his own, uh, he may be one of the shorter of the Nixon brothers. But uh, Jeremy's been standing <laughs> pretty tall himself. So, <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Both 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 uh, uh, figuratively and literally. <laughs> okay, moving on to the next category. Who is Alberta's best cabinet minister of 2020? Okay, now, so for this category, in the first round of voting, there was about 48% of the votes were some version of none of the above. Um, and then the rest were scattered between a number of cabinet ministers. Now, I so, so I made the executive decision as the host of the Dave Berta podcast, uh, for better or for worse, to include none of the above in the uh, in the four choices available on this on this round of the survey, and I guess not surprisingly, none of the above won again. Um, and I feel kind of bad about it, but I mean, this is democracy. It's not always it's not always nice. Um, so none of the above won uh, by a landslide. But I, I will talk about the three cabinet ministers who were just briefly about who the three three cabinet ministers who were um, listed as options. Leela here placed second behind none of the above, so placed first of the real people on this, uh, real cabinet ministers on this list, uh, followed by uh, Nate Glubish, who's the uh, MLA for Strathcona Sherwood Park and the Minister of Service Alberta, and followed third by Rick McIver, the Minister of Transportation. Um, so those are the three, so no one really won this. Um, I mean, I don't think being a cabinet minister in Alberta in 2020, I don't you know, I'm not sure if you were, if you could, anybody could really consider yourself a winner, I guess, regardless of, of what party you're from, 2020 is just a rough year. Um, but uh, I'd, I'd go, I'd, I'd, I'd throw it to you guys. What would, who would you pick um, for best cabinet minister of 2020? Is there Matt, a best I'll, cabinet minister of 2020? Matt, I'll let you take point on this. Sure. Uh, well, I would say, in, in my opinion, I'm going to go with Rebecca Schultz, uh, Minister of Children's Services. Uh, I think that, um, uh, you know, for, for a, a rookie minister to come into a, uh, a portfolio, um, you know, as complex as children's services is, uh, and one in which, uh, you know, I think we can be honest and say conservatives uh, typically, um, you know, they can find trouble specifically within that ministry. But I also think that's, you know, it's been a, it's been a tough portfolio uh, for any minister. And I think she's handled it well. I think we've been seeing uh, more of her in the House, uh, sort of defending the government's record uh, effectively uh, in general. Uh, and for the most part, I'd say kind of staying clear of some of the heated partisan uh, sort of over-the-top rhetoric that uh, you know you can find on any given day if you tune into the uh, 
to the legislature feed. Uh, so I would I would say uh, Rebecca Schultz would be uh, my my choice as uh, Minister of the Year. Okay. I have to say that like I you know in terms of partisanship and what ministers I say both in the legislature and and in their social media personas, I wonder how much of that is guided by their press secretaries and uh, and you know the, the premier's office because it certainly seems that some of the um, of the press staff from various ministries are um, more more volatile than others and you know more divisive and more attacking than others and it seems to feed from like between the the, the communications uh, or those assigned to communications and and the minister and and so yeah I, I sometimes wonder you know in terms of ministers that are more um that are more partisan in their rhetoric or more you know firebrands in in their rhetoric if it if it is self-started or if it comes from like you know Matt Wolf and 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 filters down to uh, to the press staff and the various ministries and sometimes I honestly wonder if there's like a point system you know if you can can be like the the meanest on Twitter today and pick the most fights on Twitter Twitter today it does like is there a pizza party that that comes on Friday like I don't know but certainly some seem to relish in it more than others and it unfortunately skews how people view the work that's happening in the ministry. And that like that seems like a really bad strategy because, you know, the 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 press staff and you know the issues managers create the stories in and of themselves and distract from something that might be happening in a ministry that is is good and is something that can be sold. And and so, you know, when I look at the list of who made the top you know and including rebecca it seems like the least scandal ridden ministries or the least uh acerbic uh press secretaries that are taking like taking the front in either like twitter or are the ones that are assigned to respond instead of the minister in in news media it i don't know it's very very bizarre to me and I can only imagine how stressful that is to, you know, not be the elected official, but then have to wear everything all the time. Yeah, no, I, I think that, that that's a risk that that exists. And I think that, you know, partially, you know, the role of press secretary is, is partial offense, partial defense, um, you know, protect your minister and get the government's message out. Um, you know, sometimes it's you're you're trying to do all of those things at once and you end up with a bit of a sort of a cacophony of sound and, and uh, you know, what the message that lands is gonna be different depending on, on who's hearing it at, uh, at any given time. Um, but I do think that in the instance of uh, Minister Schultz, she's, you know, she's been, I would say, you know, communicating largely on her own. You know, there are ministers that, uh, you know, you'll observe that frankly, they're not, uh, they're not saying a whole lot uh, themselves in question period or, or um, you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, in the house. Uh, and maybe they do rely more on, on staff to communicate, whether it's, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the policy positions of, 
of the government or, you know, playing that defense that you, you often see. Uh, but I do think that, you know, when you actually look in, uh, you know, look at Hansard and, and you're reading uh, the actual response given by, by various ministers that uh, I've just found that Rebecca Schultz's answers are typically rooted in policy. Um, you know, it's not often or it's not always that uh, uh, everyone's going to agree with the policy uh, or with government's position on an issue. But uh, when you can have an honest debate um, and you're sticking to the issues as opposed to the personalities, I think we all come out better. Um, you know, an example in, in the past, well, very effective at, at debating policy, uh, but, you know, while injecting, you know, some, some, uh, some partisan digs in there was, was Brian Mason, sort of the master at it. Uh, and I think even in all, or when he was in government as, as Minister of Transportation and Infrastructure uh, and, and the House Leader, you know, I think he he held that kind of respect uh, from every sort of uh, every corner of the uh, the legislature and across the aisle, because you could you could you could debate the policy and you could debate it uh, aggressively and vigorously uh, without compromising your principles. But you can do so in a way that at the end of the day, uh, the respect and collegiality for uh, the position and just for you know for each other as people. Uh, came through, and you know, I, I know we'll get we'll we'll get to the uh, what do we hope to see more of in in 2020. Uh, but I'll put it out there now that I I hope that there is more debate on on policy and more um, you know, and and frankly that the debate on policy um, is enabled by a government that responds uh, on, on, on policy, uh, arguments as well. And that it's not, you know, a quick sort of, uh, you know, block and pivot to, uh, the issue that you'd want to talk about, because I think this next year coming up, whether it's COVID or the economic challenges that we have, or just the, you know, the, the state that Albertans find themselves in, there's going to need to be some pretty vigorous debate on what the best path forward is. And, uh, and I hope we can see some more of that uh, in 2021, uh, and, uh, and maybe a little bit less of the, uh, well, in some ways it's, it's kind of theatrics, uh, that's, you know, that's part of the role of the legislator, uh, legislature. Um, but I think we're going to need to see a lot more, uh, ideas and a lot more debate on those than, uh, than we've seen in the past. And I think this is an issue, you both raised some interesting points about how political communication works now. And, I mean, I think we we saw it on, not necessarily. I mean, it's not unique to the not unique to the UCP though. I think they're they've fine tuned it and they're incredibly aggressive uh, about it. They've kind of taken it to to a next level. But it's this always, all you're always on the offense regardless of of you know what what the issue is. And we saw this we saw this under the, a bit under the NDP on Twitter. You saw this under the one more going back to the PCs and the Wild Rose. It was very much more the Wild Rose who was very much very much more aggressive that and and the PCs kind of being the the old kind of institutional party that didn't really, uh, you know, didn't in a lot of times didn't really know how to respond. You know, just just on a side note, I found the other day because I keep everything uh, the what I believe to be the first meme that the Progressive Conservative Caucus put out in about uh -oh. 2011 or 2010, and oh man, it was it was it did not hit the mark. It was really bad, and it wasn't. It, I mean, it was it was poorly done in a number of ways. It was very clear that the person who who created the meme 
didn't know what an internet meme was because it was very unclear who the meme was attacking. There was like a, a bobblehead picture of Alison Redford and Danielle Smith. And then there was like a key tagline message in like a weird font. But looking at it, it was not, even now, it's not totally clear who the, who the person or what the, who the intended target of the, of the meme was supposed to be. So, I mean, I think we've come, obviously we've come a lot farther from that point. I think both the, both the, uh, the UCP and the NDP have, uh, have figured out how to uh, how to generate attack memes in a way that that both their supporters and their detractors understand. But I think in terms of of political communications, we have, I mean, a situation where you know the the UCP is always on attack mode. I mean, I feel like Jason Kenney is constantly fighting a thirty front war um, and constantly surrounded and constantly going on the attack. And I think that I I, I will talk a little bit about this in, in a few minutes um, in one of the other categories. But I think that's one of the big reasons why the UCP has had such big problems with Kenny's popularity, and they've seen a a, 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 a bit of a plummet in the polls, uh, has to do with the continuing this fight during COVID. When um, in almost every other province, you're seeing, you know, political parties put aside that kind of more uh, that you know, especially governments put aside a lot of that kind of. Uh, daily day-to-day -day attack uh, political attacks that you would have in norm in normal time and uh, and I think that's taking away from the government's um, from what the government had hoped would be a positive response to their COVID response um, we talked about the COVID response on its own whether it was whether it was good or whether, whether, whether it was effective or not um, but I think it goes into political communications I mean you can talk to a I mean there, there's one there's I'm not going to name, name names, but you can talk to a cabinet minister. You can talk to Rick McIver, for example, and he in, in real life is not going to be as offensive and as aggressive as his press secretary would be, would be online on, 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 on Twitter. And I can, I, I'm not trying to single out his press secretary, but I'm just saying someone who can be, might be more agreeable in real life than they are in terms of their social media persona. And I think we've just been, we're in this culture of this constant attack mode. And I don't think it's particularly Healthy. I don't think it's a particularly good way to govern in 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 general. So, yeah, I I don't think that you can really affect um, good governance when you're picking fifty fights on any given day. I yeah, I just don't know how that works. Obviously, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'd also you know constant kind of reminder that uh, you know Twitter is not it's it's not the platform for thoughtful debate. And I think we're kind of realizing that now. So, um, <laughs> you know, it, just, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You can put out a, you know, a very well thought out uh, thread of, you know, half a dozen tweets uh, really digging into, uh, you know, whatever the issue may be. Uh, and that's going to fall flat when you compare it to, you know, the kind of, um, you know the red meat that that I would say uh, both of the uh, the parties like to throw out to their base, um, and it's it's really designed, I think, to become a bit of an echo chamber. So, you know, I I know that that's not the only area in which government and 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 even opposition is is communicating. Um, you know, there's there's other I think channels where you get more of an honest. Um, well, I think you get a little more honest discourse, uh, but the, I guess the problem is Twitter, it, it may not be representative of uh, the sort of the nuance behind what's actually happening, but it's, you know, I don't think that matters because it's it's the belief that everyone has. And when, when people are looking 
uh, you know, quickly for for the hot take on whatever the the issue of the day is. They are tuning into Twitter. It's very easy to find those hot takes and then sort of allow that to define uh, define the conversation. So, you know, I, I've got a bit of a love hate with Twitter these days because you can't ignore it because there are conversations that are either happening there or that are starting there uh, that you want to be a part of, but I don't necessarily want to be a part of them on Twitter. Okay, speaking speaking of, uh, I was going to say speaking of echo chambers, but that's not correct. I was thinking, uh, uh, looking at uh, looking at uh, at Twitter and trying trying to define uh, Alberta politics from Twitter and trying to define Alberta politics from question period uh, seems very uh, very like it, like it'd be a very similar. Uh, uh, you'd get a very similar result. So, so in that, in that note, we're going to talk about move on to the next category and talk about who the best opposition MLA is. And I frequently say that I, I watch the I watch a lot of the legislature, and question period is like my least favorite part of Alberta politics because it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's it is it's theatrics, right? So you get a lot more meat when you talk when you know, and it's a lot less sexy when you're watching MLAs debate at a committee or debate at a, uh, you know, or debate in committee of the whole but but you're actually getting some more of a more of more actual more content and and to see what, what what's actually going on so we're going to talk right now about best opposition mla of 2020 um perhaps not surprisingly because she gets the you know the most attention as the leader of the official opposition she is the former premier she is extremely recognizable um rachel notley was voted the best opposition mla of 2020 so congratulations Congratulations, Rachel Notley. Yay. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you, Jessica. Um, so, who who would uh, throwing it back to you guys? Your choices, best opposition in MLA for twenty twenty. What do you got? I so I'm going to jump in because I think that Rachel absolutely demonstrated how how great she is in that um, in that critic role uh, because you know she has absolutely. Um, like she knows everything about everything and you know as as frustrating as that can be when you know someone can can out argue you she also I think has found that you can like know many many facts but you can also distill that into something that is that is easily communicable and understandable um, and you know, with with the passion that she brings to that, um, she's certainly gotten a lot of a lot of you know a lot of fans and uh, and and kudos from a lot of people. And I have to say that watching her get kicked out of the legislature for you know for asking questions of the of the government related to the Kamikaze campaign and you know questioning whether um, whether the government is is engaging in obstruction of justice was pretty great. I'd <laughs> we were like, woo, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jessica. Matt? Yeah, well, I, I'd have to agree. I think, you know, Rachel Notley has been, you know, incredibly formidable in her role as opposition leader. Um, you know, I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, you know, I think she's she's one of the most effective communicators that we've seen in uh, Alberta politics in, in quite some time. Um, and, you know, just to see her translate, uh, you know, quite effectively into uh, the role of, of holding government to account, um, 
it's been you know it's been something to watch and and you know and I think they the the opposition led by Rachel Notley has really defined uh, some of these public arguments that we're having this year. Uh, I think that um, you know the the focus on on the uh, COVID response, um, you know, and the whether or not you agree with the measures that were uh, put in place on a certain date or not. I think that they uh, they really led the conversation uh, on these issues and made it very very difficult for for government to uh, to present their own uh, their own message on them. So. You know, I, I think the next two years will be uh, from a sort of the political uh, observation perspective will be fascinating, um, especially as both parties gear up for a, a campaign in 2023 uh, and they, you know, present to uh, to the public what the, the next platforms will look like and start communicating in that kind of language, um, because there's going to be some challenges for, for Rachel Notley as they, you know, enter that part of the... Uh, the electoral cycle, uh, and you know, it's it's one thing to to you know oppose effectively, um, but to you know to come back to the public in in two years with you know with an electoral program that looks different than uh, what you have uh, presented in the past, but that is still uh, compelling and that will you know get people excited. That'll be it'll be a challenge for sure, um, but you know that that's going to exist for uh, the UCP too. So, you know, they both have records uh, in in you know recent memory, uh, and they will both have uh, you know effective communicating leaders uh, that will be going toe to toe again in uh, in twenty twenty three. And so, you know, I think at this point. It's been set up uh, quite well for that showdown, but with two and a half years or, or just over two years left, you know, the being the the most effective uh, opposition leader now, it may it may not mean a whole lot in the lead up to that campaign um, because eventually you're going to have to start putting your entire team on display, uh, and coming from the uh the the wild rose opposition uh that's where we saw some some hiccups in campaigns of the past so uh we'll see we'll see how that's navigated through uh this time around i think that's a really um important point and the i mean i'm i'm certainly asking the same questions you know with with my circles is like how like what is your what is your vision and how do you inspire people towards you i mean certainly in 2015 we know that a lot of people just wanted to kick the the current government at the time you know the pcs out because of you know numerous reasons right like sky palace uh land rights um you know not not saving up for for a rainy day when we were going into very, very rainy days. Um, and and certainly like my hope is that we're going to hear clear policy decision or policy directions that, um, that aren't, you know, half measures because I think it's really hard to talk to people about half measures. Um, like if you wanna talk about pharmacare, you know, that's something where it's, it's something that you can communicate about. It's something that matters to people. It's something that matters to all age groups. Um, but if we're talking about like 
uh, long-term care and we don't say, okay, here's like a long-term plan for public long-term care, which we know would be, uh, would, would provide better care because that's what all of the research says. If we were like, okay, well, no, we'll just, we'll, we'll, you know, keep this part separate for, for nonprofit and keep this part separate for the private for-profit and, you know, this much for the, for the public, it's, it's harder to communicate. It's harder to inspire people. And ultimately like people want to see, um, an actual concrete solution when we see like the incredible devastation that's been happening this year. Like my mom's assisted living facility is private nonprofit um, and they're undergoing uh, an outbreak. I don't think that's because they're, they're a private nonprofit, but I do know that when we're talking about long-term care and issues between public and private, in private, you have to like count out how many incontinence products a person is allowed. Otherwise you get charged X amount of dollars over. Whereas in public, like you need what you need. A resident like gets the care that they, that they need. And we figure out how to bear that burden and that responsibility and, and that privilege together. Yeah, I think there's a real, I mean, that's, I think that's a good point. And talking about I mean, the opposition, talking about the government, and, and I mean, as Matt alluded to, the next two years going into the next election, I mean, two years is an eternity in, in politics. But I think there, I mean, if, I, if I'm going to make this, is, I mean, I, I'm going to give you my early prediction for, uh, for, uh, for 2021 or for, for the next few years in Alberta politics. And I, I don't think this is unique to Alberta, but I think there's a real reckoning coming. And I think there's going to be some real political... Uh, a real political struggle between though between politicians who want to essentially want to go back to the way things were before the pandemic, uh, and those who want to address some of the real deep systematic inequities and imbalances that we've discovered that this this COVID that COVID has exposed in our society and long term care is is definitely one of them. The you know the differences between private and public long-term care, what private long-term care means for our society, means for our, our elders and our seniors and, and how, how we care for them. Um, even things like, uh, like who, I mean, just looking at the, at the, during the pandemic, I mean, who is, who are, who are on the front lines? And we're talking from going from healthcare workers and educators in the public sector to in the private sector, grocery, uh, people, employees of grocery stores, um, um, the people who are, I mean, Jason Kenney talked about this a lot early in the pandemic, but it's true, the people who are securing the supply lines. So truckers, people who are, are making sure that there are there's food and, and supplies stocked in our grocery stores, because grocery stores can be open, but if those if people, if you know, if, if people aren't driving the trucks and stocking the warehouses, uh, then, you know, your grocery store is going to be empty pretty soon. So there's, I think, and, and those people aren't necessarily, you know, you know in, in, in most cases, you know, these are not the highest paid people in our society. A lot of these people, um, you know, if if they're if they're not unionized, they probably don't have good benefits. Um, yet they're absolutely essential to the way we live and our way of life. So I think there's a lot of um, a lot of. I mean, I call it a reckoning, but I think we really need to like look at that and figure out. You know, look at what happened with COVID rather than just rushing and returning to to normal and what what a lot of people were comfortable with. I mean, I want I want to return to before, but I also want the before to be better than it was. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that looking at, at both the government and the opposition going into the next three years, that's one of the things that I think is going to be, that I hope is going to be one of the big struggles is that there's going to be a, actually be a debate 
about what that looks like and how do we improve our society and improve working conditions and living conditions for for people who are the most vulnerable in normal times and people who are who are increasingly vulnerable in uh, in times of pandemic in times of uh, of when we have these healthcare disasters well i think we're 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 going to have a debate that at least you know nibbles on those edges if not if not digs right into that because i think it's clear that uh as a result of of you know the pandemic but also you know just sort of years of uh you know pretty tenuous fiscal situation for for the province you know the finance minister has has said more or less that they will be putting some other revenue options on the table um you know i know that they've talked about having a sort of a, an expert panel and sort of a mckinnon type panel to look at the revenue mix uh there's also you know uh, some speculation on whether or not we would see a uh a referendum question uh, on a PST coming in uh, in October, um, we know that there's going to be referendum questions on uh, certainly on the fair deal uh, situation, uh, but maybe there will be others. And so, you know, when we're we're talking about about fiscal sustainability and opening up the door to perhaps you know uh, a new sort of mix of taxation, or perhaps it is uh, uh, you know perhaps we are looking at consumption taxes. Who knows? Uh, but I do think that all of those things are almost. Do, do you mean a carbon tax? Was <laughs> I, well, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was carbon tax. What was that? <laughs> well, I mean, even on the carbon tax, right? Like, there, the the conversations are, uh, they are shifting. Whether whether you like it or not, they are shifting. You see, you know, Aaron O'Toole uh, at the federal level is approaching the you know the net zero conversation and carbon pricing. Uh, you know, very differently than we saw with Andrew Scheer. Uh, I don't know if we're going to see, you know, a Jason Kenney uh, government, uh, you know, turn heel on a carbon tax and, and all of a sudden embrace it. In fact, I, I think that's, you know, about the most unlikely thing uh, we can expect. But on other, you know, on other things that we thought were maybe uh, kind of the third rail, that is not how they're being talked about uh, with, uh, with this government in, in recent months. And, you know, there's going to be some who want to have that conversation on, you know, what does the uh, what does the spending plan look like in terms of, uh, you know, private versus public long term care. Uh, you know, we know this government's made some pretty clear decisions on uh, finding private sector, um, you know, partners or or operators to Friends. to contract out, uh, you know, some of these services, whatever you want to call them. I mean, there that's the the direction on that is has been clear. But if we're also having a conversation on on revenue, then it's only natural that there will be voices who want to have a conversation on how that revenue spent. Uh, so, and that's going to start before the next election. Um, I think it's pretty clear that uh, you know this government's balanced budget plan was blown out of the water. Uh, I don't think anyone—I shouldn't say anyone—but I don't think most folks are you know have uh, you know budget. Uh, balance near the top of their priority list right now, but eventually, you know, heading into that campaign, every party is going to need to come with a credible plan for, you know, incentivizing growth. Uh, you know, having some element or sense of st uh, stability in in the public books, uh, and talking about how money is spent. 
uh, how revenue is raised, all of those things will have to be on the table. Uh, and I think in order to have a public that is ready to make some, you know, pretty tough decisions in the ballot box in 2023, I think those conversations really should be starting sooner rather than later. So as much as I like really want to move in on to the next question, like there's just a few things that I want to say there is that like last year, Jason Kenney struck a panel on, um, on expenditures. He could have struck that panel on revenue and expenditure and expenditures, but because he, you know, has to do 50 million panels and, you know, he, he just could not have that conversation with Alberta at the time and you know so everybody was like oh well you know it's not expended it's not revenue that's the problem well obviously revenue is the problem obviously when you have a 25 billion dollar deficit in a year because you're trying to manage a pandemic revenue is a problem and so you know he is giving away um the ability for government to earn revenue or or gather revenue when he cuts corporate taxes from 12 to 8% um and he scraps the the carbon tax and says you know basically we'll we'll let we'll fight Ottawa on it Ottawa is still going to impose this but when they impose it they're going to take the money out of Alberta and we will just beg for the scraps back you know that might fall off the table he is killing uh, post-secondary and no I don't think that that is you know too hot language because he's I think it's like 140 million dollars he's cutting out of post-secondary over four years uh, he has killed the um, the capital um, anyway the, the tax innovation credits that would help companies invest in in, in innovation technology or help people invest in, in in innovation and technology, but he's bringing it back. You know, 18 months later, after calling it, um, you know, a nice thing to have, he's finally bringing it back. Uh, you know, like uh, what is a credible plan? I, th I think a credible plan is actually talking about where the revenue is going that is fair to tax it back because. Back in 2015, the PCs said they put out a, a you know a question to the public and said, "Should we raise taxes on those who can most afford it?" And like 70% of Albertans said yes, yes, we think that there should be progressive taxation on on um, on income taxes. We think we should have you know uh, larger taxes on profitable corporations, and instead of saying yeah you know we're going to incorporate that because that's what albertans are talking to us about he said i'm gonna take a billion dollars out of healthcare. i'm gonna give you user fees out you know out uh coming out of your ears um and we're gonna reinstate healthcare premiums it's not that revenue doesn't need to be gathered but who are you asking to pay for it because if you're saying corporations don't have to bear as much of that bear burden, but you do, then I think you start to lose the support from the public that you're trying to gather. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, well, put it this way, I, everything that, that, that he has done to date so far has been things that he, has, he had committed to during the campaign. 
right? Like it or like it or not, he talked at length during the campaign about an expert panel on on Alberta's finances with an aim at looking towards you know financial sustainability, uh, you know, bringing the uh, Alberta's um, you know rate of spending down to a level that is more comparable per capita uh, with other provinces. You know, so all of those things were were, I would say, very well communicated through the campaign. Now, the the challenge, of course, be, becomes the prescription being some rather tough medicine, and um, you know, and and it's one thing to to talk about right. it. And, and who are you asking to take that medicine? Are you asking the average Albertan to take that medicine, or are you asking profitable corporations to take that medicine? Well, I mean, I think the the position of government is we would love to see more profitable corporations, right? And and their 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 focus being at least pre-COVID uh, was on you know creating a an environment for economic growth. And um, what happened as a matter of the corporate tax cut? Lot, lots of companies that are that have been making money hand over fist have been laying off people by the hundreds and sometimes the thousands. So it's not resulting in jobs. Well, no, but there are many other conditions. I think that you, if you want to have an honest debate about that, then you have to you have to recognize, you know, the the OPEC price war, the the fact that you know we were we were literally, you know, or Alberta producers of uh, of energy products were literally having to pay to uh, to to you know move their products to market, uh, and then the pandemic. So there are a number of things that uh, happened that. Uh, you know, I would say make job creation quite a challenge. Um, you know, I think that in 2023, there will be uh, a debate. And I think, you know, on whether or not the, uh, the corporate in income tax reduction, you know, did what, um, you know, what the premier had, had said it would do. Um, but I also think that in terms of a solution, raising that rate back up is not necessarily going to a create jobs or b create revenue so uh, it does you know, create revenue it did I, create I, revenue I, well, I, I, that's, I, that's I, what I, happens it, it, in, it in 2019 we increased revenue by increasing corporate corporate taxes I, I, I would love to have a continue this debate about trickle down economics because I think it's bunk <laughs> and and I'd love I but but we can come back to this. Uh, I appreciate uh, the kind back and forth. Thank you. Yeah, no, absolutely. This is great. Um, but we do got to get through this list uh, because I said okay. we were going to get through this list, um, and we're only on only on number four because this discussion has been so great. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. You know, in Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. And if you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. The Edmonton City as Museum Project, or ECAMP, tells the stories of the people, places, things, and moments that define Edmonton. 
ECAMP is an Edmonton Heritage Council initiative and is looking for emerging and experienced audio storytellers to bring to life a podcast series on queer, immigration, and neighborhood histories. For the upcoming second season of the ECAMP podcast, you can help tell these stories by applying by January 8th to join the new production team as production coordinator or as a segment host. Whether you're a history nerd, a podcasting whiz, or just looking to tell community stories through sound, visit citymuseumedmonton.ca slash podcast to find out more. Again, to join the eCamp podcast team, visit citymuseumedmonton.ca slash podcast and apply by January 8th. Okay, so number four. Uh, who is the up-and-coming MLA to watch in 2021? Now, we had three choices. Uh, the top three, Thomas Dang, the MLA for Edmonton South, Janice Irwin, the MLA for Edmonton Highlands Norwood, who we, we talked about it earlier, and the winner of the category, Racky Pencholi, uh, M- M- NDP MLA for Edmonton Whitemud. So congratulations, Racky Pencholi. Um, Racky was first elected in 2019 um, as the yeah as the NDP MLA for, uh, for Edmonton Whitemud. So... What do you think, guys? Do you do you want do you have a comment on 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 the winner, or do you want to share your choice for uh, for this category? I would say that I'm not surprised that Raki was chosen. She's also been uh, really really active with community organizing and and her advocacy and in, in her role um, as critic uh, of children's services. And you know, without her, uh, without her very loud and um and competent voice uh she you know i don't think as many people would know about things like 25 dollar a day child care pilot projects being cut i don't think people i don't think people would know as much about um provincial standards being rolled back for child care she's and you know she puts herself as as a professional, as a mom um at the forefront of that conversation to say like i understand your your concerns. I live those concerns. And, you know, and so she really talks about how these are things that she wrestles together with other, other folks. I mean, who doesn't want someone to understand the challenges that they're experiencing? Yeah, no, I think, I think, uh, you know, Racky Pantoli has been a very effective critic, uh, you know, as a brand new MLA, it, it obviously didn't take uh, much time to learn the ropes and to, you know, to transition from just figuring out what am I, you know, what is my job as, as an MLA? How do I represent my constituents? Uh, while also, you know, holding the government to a, to account in, in a way that uh, makes news. Uh, and when you're an opposition critic, that's, you know, that's half the job alone is, is finding, uh, finding a platform and uh, really getting that coverage. So, you know, kudos to, uh, to her for that. I think, um, you know, it's interesting. So on the one hand, I, you know, I had uh, sort of picked Rebecca Schultz as as my pick for uh, for Minister of the Year. Uh, but I'll acknowledge that you know the best ministers are typically those who who have to face off against effective critics. Uh, you know, it forces you to be better. It forces you to be more honest. Uh, and in the end, I think we've got a situation where you know that that vigorous debate is is happening um you know the policy decisions of government are being exposed they're being communicated uh you know there there's a lot of uh, attention being drawn to uh to frankly childcare 
uh, under a UCP government. And um, that's, you know, probably not something I would have predicted uh, back in 2019. Uh, but again, it's I think it's an example of of the public uh, benefiting from you know strong strong individuals both you know in the critic role uh, and in uh, you know and in as minister uh, because we are getting we're getting uh, I think a level of debate that is um, only enabled when you can have uh, you know intellectual discussions about where you know where you want to see uh this system go and we're we're all benefiting from that yeah yeah I, oh sorry go ahead dave no I, I was just gonna say i mean i agree with the um with the the pairing with minister and and uh, and critic between rebecca schultz and racky pancholi um in terms of watching the legislature it's you know th there are some critics and ministers who don't really i mean they don't they don't really match up or they don't really jive in terms of, of how the debate goes. And I think that with um, between uh, Schultz and Pancholi, I think that you both have, at least in the legislature, you have two very effective communicators. Um, and I've been, I've been quite impressed with Raki. I think she's been um, one. I mean, I didn't, I, I knew her before uh, she was elected in as, as an MLA, but you can never really quite tell, you know, before someone's elected, how they're going to do in in uh, in the in in the legislature as a as an elected official. I mean, one of the uh, I, I I frequently get asked people ask me as as a political watcher, you know, well, what makes a great MLA, and I, you know, and what kind of background do people need to make a great MLA? And I mean, frequently my response is, well, a lot of times it doesn't really matter what you you know, it, it might not really matter what you do outside the legislature. I mean, there there are. I could name off names. I'm not going to name off names, but there are like a dozen people I could name who were captains of industry and vice presidents of oil companies and lawyers and and just like the top of their you know the top of their private industry and in, you know then in in whatever whatever uh, whatever sector they worked in, and they were elected as star candidates and then they became total duds as MLAs and they were totally forgettable and I have no idea what they did, uh, and many of them just served one term and then disappeared back to the private sector. Um, so just be you know. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to tell what what exactly um, what exactly makes makes a good MLA in terms of in terms of, of a, whether it be an opposition MLA or or a government minister. I mean, a lot of people excel. Um, you know, people don't fit don't fit the stereotype is what is what I mean. In, in a lot of cases, the most effective politicians aren't necessarily those who, you know, we think lawyers or uh, you know business people are kind of these generic political types that that kind of float around out there. But but in a lot of cases, it's it's you know those it takes a broad group of people to make a good uh, to make a good government and Rocky is a lawyer correct she came yes, from yes. McLennan and Ross and um you know for as for as many people don't appreciate the fact that she was um that she was elected from you know from coming from a McLennan and Ross um labor side uh or sorry employer side employer labor side. lawyer um certainly she has worked very hard to be relatable like being relatable comes naturally to her she doesn't come across as uh, as as a lawyer she mm -hmm. just comes across as um as a mom and uh, and a, a professional woman that like that obviously really has it together i mean i remember the first time i saw her debating in the house about you know the the rollback of a lot of the labor law that was happening back in the fall with the with the UCP and I was 
impressed with how, you know, with how she was able to talk about those, those subjects with complete ease. And um, I mean, Alberta is the youngest province in the country on average of age. And, you know, obviously that means a lot of people with kids. So she's able to communicate on those issues really effectively. And, you know, she's, she's approachable and, and people love when they have an opportunity to meet her. So it doesn't surprise me that she's been selected there. Okay, congratulations, Raki. Uh, moving on to the next category. Uh, this is one that, I, that didn't make it to the second round of voting because it was, uh, it was such a landslide in the first round uh, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone, but COVID-19 was the biggest political issue of 2020 and it's a broad issue. And we basically spent a year's worth of podcasts talking about what COVID-19 means for different, uh, different areas of Alberta politics and for, and for Albertans. Um, so it shouldn't really be a surprise. It is that it is something that is, you know, the pandemic has defined our politics. It's it's not necessarily something that I would have, I mean, that any of us would have thought in January or February or even March. But but uh, but since then, it's it's defined it. So I don't know if if you guys have any uh, any any comments uh, on on uh, on COVID that uh, that we didn't talk about earlier in the podcast, or we could just. Well, I guess it's 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 funny. Just the point you made about it not being uh, even in March, uh, you know, not thinking that that would be sort of the defining issue. Uh, when when the government brought forward their throne speech and their their flagship or a flagship uh, bill, it was to to uh, to respond to the uh, the Wet'suwet'en um, uh, demonstrations that were happening across the province or across the country, uh, and you know, very quickly everything changed um and you know that uh uh that bill one uh you know it, it passed rather quickly but you know the focus immediately at the start of that session uh almost became you know pandemic response and uh so you know things did happen rather rapidly um and the things we were talking about in march just are not the things we're talking about now Mm -hmm. I suspect it, COVID will probably be, I mean, the, the big issue, if not one of the biggest issues going into 2021 as well. I mean, I guess we'll see how, how the vaccine rolls out, rollout goes and what the response is to that. But this is, this is something that's going to be with us for years. Yeah, I mean, certainly, um, the, I think the longer that this has dragged on, certainly it's, it's also just ex become exponentially larger. And, you know, we were hoping for the best with the first lockdown that happened in the spring. And it just didn't seem like the, well, you know, multiple governments, not just Alberta, but multiple governments couldn't utilize that time better to not have to go through this second round of um, massive expenditures uh, that, you know, are, are meant to try to keep people uh, either furloughed at work or not getting evicted and put out on the street from their home. Um, you know, people are, are, have exhausted their pensions, have exhausted, you know, all of the avenues to try to, to make ends meet and take care of their kids. And I, it's just, it's, I, I feel so much for everybody that is going through this. And, um, you know, it's the, the big issues were 
you know, or protest related and budget related and, you know, the, the current, the current struggles that we see still ongoing. I mean, yeah, you know, the, the spring session might've been related to the wet sweat and protests and, and been a government was a government that was trying to trample on constitutional rights to peacefully gather. Um, but now we see people that are, that are using that, um, that are trying to, to co-opt, you know, the, the right to protest for the right to like break public healthcare protocols. And so now the government, you know, is, has been sort of going back and forth on how do we, uh, how do we keep, you know, what they would call law and order in intact while keeping constitutional rights intact, because they keep realizing that, um, that they're not doing a great job at that, right? Like they're, they're either trying to legislate to, to trample on their rights. And then you have the, there was a, an anti-lockdown protest that happened in the legislature back in, in the spring, which ended up in a, a guy getting, you know, picked up by all four limbs and, and carried off. And Jason Kenney said, oh, well, it turns out you do have a right to protest. And then, you know, the Black Lives Matters protest started and, you know, the people were, um, were trying to do it, you know, with distance and with, with masking. And, you know, so there was an obvious recognition of rights there. But now people are using that ob obvious recognition of rights and like trying to figure out where you balance um, protests, protesting rights, and like uh, putting people at risk because you're breaking, you know, the 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 person limits of outdoor gatherings under under the chief medical health officer's gathering. I mean, it's just it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a a disaster right now. I mean, cops are trying to figure out where their rights are, what they're supposed to be doing. Sheriffs are trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing. And that lack of like clear direction from the premier down is in my opinion, creating this, this much um, more, uh, you know, little fire starting everywhere, you know, tinder, um, burning tinder that just, we, we don't know what's gonna happen. I would argue, though, if you know, if the premier had started dictating to to law enforcement, uh, you know, how they should uh, respond to these to these demonstrations, I think we would see, you know, an even larger uproar, uh, and and deservedly so, because I think we're, you know, the governments across the country are in a position right now, a very untenuous position, where you know they they have you know they they have to acknowledge the constitutional rights for for Canadians to you know to protest and to demonstrate um, but they're also not uh, supposed to be in a position where they dictate to law enforcement you know how they you know how they uh, respond to these kinds of events so but the the challenge will be you know this next year uh, I'm I'll predict that uh, in 2021 the the anti-vaxxers will become you know they will be today's anti-maskers and i think that uh you know certainly in alberta all of the public polling uh shows that you know in terms of where we stand within the country 
we have probably the highest skepticism towards vaccine, you know, vaccines in general, uh, and certainly with with the uh, the COVID vaccines. Uh, you know, and as more and more people are vaccinated next year, uh, and we see you know larger and larger uh, protections being placed around vulnerable populations, um, I think we're going to see you know divisions uh, that we have not yet seen before, and uh, probably a level of emotion on the issue uh, that we have not seen before. And it's going to make for a very challenging uh, environment for for government and for law enforcement, um, and and frankly for people trying to provide services uh, to Albertans. You know, there's there's some uh, debate already happening on things like immunization passports, uh, and I know that for a large chunk of Albertans, you know, they would love that idea. You know, you 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 go and get your vaccination. Uh, uh, you know, and you, you, you've got something to, to demonstrate that. And so now you can access, you know, a lot of the services that uh, were being made available before the pandemic. But on the other side, you know, there's going to be a, like, you know, a huge population within the province uh, that is entirely opposed to that, either because they, uh, you know, they have some skepticism towards vaccines um, they have an ideological uh, sort of uh, opposition to government dictating to them what they should put in their arm at any point. Uh, and then also just the idea that government is now, uh, you know, collecting, you know, these kinds of records in a way that can be used to, you know, either admit or deny services. So all of these things, I think, are leading to a, uh, a year in Alberta in particular, but probably, you know, across the country. Um, that sees these kinds of divisions, um, uh, I would say, deepen. Uh, but also, I, I don't necessarily think that they will fall along traditional lines. Um, when it comes to to the vaccine conversation, you know, I see people fall on on either side of that argument from every political perspective. From you know, and and sort of cutting across even rural and Alberta. Um, and I don't know how, uh, you know, how a government can, uh, can navigate that, um, knowing that uh, they're already in a position where, you know, the, the approval ratings are not any secret. So they're in a position where, you know, they're having probably more and more of a, a challenge to, to convince Albertans um, on public health measures to date. Uh, but when, you know, when you're seeing, you know, big chunks of the population uh, inoculated or vaccinated against this this disease uh, and others not, and them making it very apparent in public that, you know, not only are they not going to get vaccinated, uh, but they will gather in large numbers to to demonstrate against it. I but don't know what that solution is. Like Jason Kenney, when he had the opportunity to put in mandatory mask measures, he decided that um, that he wasn't going to do that, that he was gonna make Alberta the very last province to have a mandatory mask-wide um, right. mandate. And, you know, that that means that like you're, I mean, as a premier, you're, you're starting to play people off one another. And you're saying, well, maybe it's a big deal here, but it's not a big deal here. And so like that sort of mixed message 
just doesn't work in terms of government leadership. And then when we have the vaccine roll out, the first thing he didn't say was, you know, we're going to make sure that this is the that this is a safe vaccine, that this is an accessible vaccine, that this is a vaccine that is um, that is accessed by um, by you know the the most vulnerable people and the people that are running into the burning buildings of hospitals to take care of it to take care of us. His first thing that he said in that press announcement was, "We are going to repeal laws." that would make vaccines, that could make vaccines mandatory. That was the message that he led off with. And so when you have demonstrations right now where everybody in that group, if you have looked at the pictures, they are already holding anti-masking and anti-vaccine signs. So the the people the people are, are have a lot of time to spend online and you know find uh, sign, <laughs> find pseudoscience that aligns with whatever their their um, their opinion or ideology is um, when it's harder to uh, to access science that that aligns not that just aligns with like reality but you know it's hard to say that all of these measures that keep you safe are going to keep you home and the government isn't going to backfill your ability to pay the bills. So if I have a government that says there is a pandemic, you could get sick, you could die. Um, unfortunately, Jason Kenney at one point said that basically it was an old person's problem. You know, well, the average person dying of it is 82 and the average age of dying in general is 84. Well, that certainly didn't help his messaging. Um, but when we have people that are already stretched to their max and the government isn't putting in place all of the measures that allow them to take care of themselves and their family, I can understand the height of frustration that is driving behind some of these demonstrations. I, I'm, I'm sure that some of the people leading them um, aren't entirely uh, you know, forthright in 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 their own motivations. But I know that a lot of people that like honk their horns and wave in recognition are people that are also frustrated that their lives have been, you know, for some people completely put on hold and put at the mercy of government and government isn't doing its role of taking care of the people that it is supposed to do in, in that role. I, I think in terms of... Um... I mean, those you know, great great points. One one of the interesting things, just just re revolving around this issue of who the who the premier is trying to communicate with. I mean, I think I mean Jessica, I, I I felt the same thing when I when the premier came out and he was with Minister Health Minister Tyler Shandro and and do, I think Dr. Verna Yu from AHS and Dr. Dina Hinshaw. Um, they announced the the vaccine schedule that it was coming, the vaccine was coming, and I mean when he did when the premier you know pushed what, what seemed to be his primary message was this, you know, the vaccine is coming, but it won't be mandatory. Um, and then there was an, uh, kind of an internet meme circulated around by, by the government that had, you know, in big bold letters said vaccine, not mandatory. And then in small letters on the bottom said, we encourage everybody to get vaccinated. I mean, it was very clear who they were trying to communicate with. Um, and I thought it was interesting this past week, 
uh, Jared Wesley from the University of Alberta and the Common Ground Project released a bunch of polling or survey research, polling research that they, they'd collected over the summer uh, about um, about Albertans, I mean, Albertans' attitudes towards, I think there was stuff about Albertans' attitudes toward, towards vaccines and towards masking, but, but also talking about political polling and where the UCP may have been losing its vote to. So we've, we've, I mean, there've been numerous polls that have shown the UCP have fallen in the polls since the 2019 election. Um, that's not uncommon for governments, but it seems to be like, this is actually, seems to be very significant in terms of how far the UCP has fallen, considering this is Alberta. Um, and there is only one main major conservative party, but it doesn't seem that the, I mean, what, 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 what Dr. Wesley was, 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 uh, was trying, was arguing was that it doesn't seem that the UCP is losing a lot of support or most of its support towards the NDP, but towards some of these more kind of right-wing parties. And we have this culture in Alberta, these kind of cottage, this cottage industry of right-wing political parties. And at any given time, there's about, you know, five or six kind of pseudo-separatist or openly separatist right-wing kind of fringe parties. And we know one of them that's been getting quite a bit of attention is the Wildrose Independence Party. And while I think that independence fervor has settled after we were, were you know, the, the politics have changed, um, it's still there. It's always kind of there in Alberta politics, kind of there at the fringes. Um, the, you know, but I think the, I think Wexit has waned, but this group now led by former Wildrose MLA Paul Hinman um, as their interim leader has has gra grabbed on to the anti-mask uh, debate and has you know he's going to Paul Hinman's going to protests talking about uh, talking about freedom and in in the context of not having to wear a mask and 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 presumably um, not presumably uh, if if not out, he's if he's not outright saying it, it insinuating that 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 you don't have you know that, that having a max getting a vaccine isn't mandatory and talking about talking about it in that context so. I mean, it's really interesting to me that that Premier Kenny seems to be spending so much time looking over his right shoulder. And you'd think that, you know, I mean, the, the United Conservative Party was supposed to be the conservative party, the mother of all conservative parties, and it was supposed to be united. Whereas, I mean, it, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not asking Matt to, to unveil any trade secrets, um, but I mean, it was cobbled together very quickly. It was cobbled mm -hmm. together between two or, you know, two main factions, but a whole group of factions in between who didn't necessarily like each other. We didn't necessarily get along, and there was quite a bit of animosity. I mean, you only have had to pay attention to Alberta politics from 2010 to 2017 to know that the Wild Rose Party and the PC Party did not get along. They weren't even really, in a lot of cases, the same breed of conservative. Um, so I think there's, I think that part of this, and unfortunately, it's having an impact on the public health. I think the public health response from the government. But Kenny is trying to like fix these these fissures in the. Uh, these cracks in his, in his electoral coalition. And I think that, like, I think he's actually quite afraid that, that there would be a breakaway, that there could be a breakaway that could impact the, uh, impact the, uh, the UCP, you know, a right wing, another conservative party that could gain momentum that could break away and, and impact the UCP in 2019. It's the only way I can, pardon me, in 2023, it's the only way I can, can kind of explain, I mean, aside from the kind of the, kind of the pure, more ideological uh, approaches he's taking and the UCP is taking. Um, I mean, I think they're, they're, quite afraid of, of something like that like that happening and that's that's kind of how I am trying to you know trying to interpret and trying to explain it yeah well I guess you know, if he wasn't looking over his right shoulder uh, I think that would you know there would be much bigger problems for the party uh, uh, than you know sort of the constant kind of signal checks on 
to to the right flank. The you know the whole exercise. You're right. Like it, the party was born out of you know a rather rapid process, um, and it's in in a way you know it's quite remarkable that the um, the two legacy parties uh, were able to convince their membership to a degree you know that saw 95 I think it was 95 percent in both parties um, you know approving merger. And I think that that was based on the, you know, first off, there was an overwhelming desire within the parties to, to defeat the NDP. I think that was the number one motivation. Uh, and so the simple math on that, you know, it made sense. But there were a lot of people, uh, certainly from the, from the Wild Rose perspective, that said, you know, okay, we'll do this, but we're going to keep you honest. You know, we're we're gonna hold you, you know, hold you accountable. And uh, you know, just like we used to do with Danielle Smith or with Brian Jean, you know, we're gonna hold Jason Kenny accountable uh on on the things that he says, you know, he will do. And you know, so when so when the premier, you know, out of you know, by necessity due to COVID, uh, you know, tells tells people in you know, rural Alberta, uh, you can't go see your family for Christmas this year. The there's there's going to be an outsized, I'd say, uh, emotional response than you know, say you know, it had been you know a few years earlier, and it was Premier Notley uh, communicating the same thing because there is uh, there is an element of almost betrayal in that. Um, I you know I I think that. One of the reasons why the premier uh, resisted uh, implementing, you know, stronger measures for a while was not necessarily, I don't think, simply because he's playing to a base, but I think because the there's a population, there's a, you know, I mean, I grew up in Brooks, Alberta, uh, so you know, the rural sort of uh, perspective is you know, they may go ahead and wear masks voluntarily or distance voluntarily. Uh, but that same person, the second government tells them to do it, they don't want to do it. It's, it's a bit of a sort of a defiance culture. Um, and I, you know, I don't want to paint every rural Albertan with that brush because there's, you know, it's not homogenous in, in that kind of thinking. But I do think that was the concern the premier had is, you know, are we going to push people off, uh, off the you know the fence on this to the point where you know they are now demonstrating and they are you know violating public health measures in a in a way that can affect a larger population because they're gathering in in large numbers and maybe they wouldn't have uh, had you know had restrictions been been brought in uh, to you know to impact those communities. It's you know in a lot of ways it's kind of a no-win situation. But I do know that, um, you know, I, I disagree that the independence um, movement has has uh, has sort of subsided. It may be, you know, they may be a little um, less vocal about it because they're channeling their sort of political energy into things like, you know, uh, you know, the masks or or. Uh, you know, vaccines yeah. or whatever else. I, I get I get my Wexit emails every day, and there's there's a lot of talk about international globalist conspiracies and and the Great Reset. And so I don't. I mean, I think they're probably in there. No doubt there are individuals who are probably 
you know, more sensible who feel, you know, who support Alberta autonomy or support Alberta independence. But I mean, definitely there's, there's, you know, in terms of the, the people who are sending out these, who are ma maintaining these email lists, there's definitely a big, uh, you know, conspiracy theory, internet conspiracy theory bent going on here. Um, I no, can I, only imagine, though, also that there is a bit of wane of Wexit when a, a huge number of Albertans relied on the CERB to pay bills this year. And and that doesn't mean that, like, that doesn't mean that that wasn't, that didn't leave people without challenges, because obviously it left a lot of people still with challenges. But when you see that Alberta on its own is not coming to bear with the resources that you need to pay your rent, but the federal government is, that's likely going to dampen some of that you know, some of that um, movement to separate from the federal government. Okay. I, I would agree with that. But I, I do think, though, that, you know, we're coming up to this referendum in, in October. That's going to be a tipping point one way or another um, and the results of that referendum. Because, you know, if if the federal government does not respond in the way uh, you know, to, to uh, say, a, you know, a positive vote on withdrawing or reforming equalization. The federal government does not respond in, in the way that uh, that movement would expect them to after that vote. Then I think Wexit has the opportunity or potential to really take off uh, kind of in the red zone of a provincial election. And I think that presents a serious challenge for, for the uh, governing party right now. Okay, we can we can come back and talk to talk about Wexit and, and give them more oxygen another time. Uh, <laughs> but for, for, for the next question, moving on, what was the biggest political play of 2020 in Alberta? And this was a really interesting one because our friends at the Strategist podcast uh, did their best to try to hack this uh, hack <laughs> by encouraging their listeners to uh, to submit the Strategists winning the biggest political play of 2020 in Alberta as the biggest political play of Alberta in 2020. Uh, unfortunately, um, I'm sorry, Stephen Carter, but but uh, but it was you were not successful. The strategist placed second in in this category. The UCP fight with Alberta's doctors placed first. Um, moving on to our final question, uh, and this is this was a bonus question that we added in the second round uh, of voting uh, because it was fun, and I was interested to see who uh, who people would 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 uh, would submit. The question was, who is an Albertan most likely to be a future Alberta Premier, not including Jason Kenney and Rachel Notley? And we got a ton of responses. Um, roughly, I looked at, I, I downloaded the spreadsheet and roughly looked at who the uh, who the, the the leaders were in this category. I don't have percentages for you, um, but roughly the leaders were interestingly um, the two. Well, the two of the of of the uh, of the number one or the number one and number two in in, in whatever order were um, Don Iveson and Nahid Menchi, um, two mayors. You know, long time. I just wouldn't say long term. One two term and one three term. I think mayor um, of of Alberta's largest cities. Well known, uh, well respected. Uh, not necessarily affiliated or associated with the political party, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and then other names that were on the list, uh, Doug Schweitzer, uh, who's one that's that's uh, um, economic minister for for the current government, whose name has come up. I think he ran for the UCP leadership in uh, in 2018, 2017, and tweeted uh, no conflict when he was the justice <laughs> minister on Twitter in all capitals. Like, 
Yes, uh, good, good, good usage of, of Twitter there, Mr. <laughs> Minister, Minister Schweitzer. Um, Shannon Phillips' name came up, and, and again, uh, the crowd favorite, Janice Irwin, uh, was up there. So um, we can only, I, I can only personally hope that one day we'll see in Alberta where Janice Irwin uh, enters the Premier's office. But, uh, but we'll, I'm not sure what Janice's plans are for, for the future. So um, what, uh, who, what, what, you, 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 what you, were you guys thinking in terms of, of submissions for this list? Well, I guess my first comment is the, you know, tr transitioning from the from the mayor's chair to that of a party leader, I think is way more difficult than a lot of folks would assume. Uh, you know, you add that party politics element to it, the fact that, you know, you, you not only have a caucus that you need to lead, but a party membership, um, it's, it is not at all the same type of role. That's not to say that uh, you know either of them would be ill suited for it, but I just I don't think that you know the fact that they they've served as mayors of, of Alberta's two largest cities makes them any better off to run a political party uh, than anyone else. So uh, you know I'll, I'll make that point there. Um, but in terms of sort of you know who who could or who is likely to make uh, a next Alberta premier. I'm going to sort of go with a bit of a dark horse candidate on this one, uh, and I'm going to say Tracy Allard, the uh, new Minister of Municipal Affairs. Um, I don't she might want to start wearing a mask in, in meetings if she wants to take a leadership role. Well, I, I have a feeling that when the, uh, when the time comes years from now, uh, if that's her biggest sin, I think uh, many folks will, uh, will forgive that. But I do think that on um, relationships with uh, the you know the two major cities uh, Edmonton and Calgary by you know every account uh, they've improved uh, since she uh, came into that role uh, but I also understand she you know as a support of her colleagues uh, she's you know been quite impressive around the cabinet table uh, and so you know I'll put her on the list as a, an interesting name as uh, someone who could be the you know a likely premier down the road I have to say that she'll probably sort of like survive in that role until Jason Kenney asks her, like he asked the, the last minister in that role to cut more funding from municipalities. So, because as soon as you do that, you've basically, you know, picked uh, hundreds of arguments uh, across the province. So that's, um, that is a tough one to weave when you have a, a premier who is tasking you to to cut um, funding that goes towards municipalities and then you have to go to your constituents as councillor or mayor and tell them that either, you know, either their, their gravel road isn't going to get graded um, or the, you know, the oil and gas leases are going to go unpaid or uh, there isn't going to be any money left in the, in, in the rink budget. Like I, I don't know. That's that's a tough that's a tough uh, road to go as that minister with a with a premier that is like is bent on on cutting the budget. I guess to be to be somewhat fair to the previous minister, uh, he did that and then he got promoted. So I mean, what uh, what you need to do to excel in different government cabinets is is, uh, is unique. Um, I would vote for Shannon Phillips. Shannon, Shannon Phillips, Phillips right? yeah, I think that. Uh, that the way that she commands media is really um, is formidable. You know, talking about the 
the potential for the for the UCP to take the Alberta's CPP money out of the federal government and potentially hand it over to AIMCO uh, to suffer a another multi-billion dollar loss um, was uh, a great use of her platform. And then, you know, she was able to, to talk about the fact that, um, that when she was the, the Minister of Environment and Parks, um, that she was being spied on by the Lethbridge police. Like she, she manages to talk about these issues without, um, I don't know, like in a really in really balanced ways that uh, that she manages to talk to 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 most people and sometimes everybody. Okay, those are two two uh, great choices. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing, guys. Last but not least, I'm gonna and we kind of we've kind of did this 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 conversation this this podcast has taken us in conversations uh, a bit all over the map, and we all we I think we both we we all kind of shared a bit of a bit of this. We may have, may have already shared a little bit of this, but just to recap to 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 wrap up the podcast. Uh, if you could share with our listeners what your hopes and dreams or hopes and predictions are for Alberta politics in 2020. Jessica, starting with you. Okay. Uh, my hopes and predictions, I hope to see more work done on criminal justice reform. Uh, that is is something that the, the government is definitely talking about. Um, but I, you know, given that it's a, it's a party made up of of conservatives, um, I don't know what sort of restorative elements are going to be uh, are going to be put together into those those changes. Um, much less, uh, much less rights for for people within prisons. Considering we see multiple outbreaks that are that actually just killed um, a correctional officer in Fort Saskatchewan uh, at their correction center. But those are those are hopes that I would see for for society and for Alberta in general. Um, you know, an actual banning of carding that would actually allow people to uh, to not be stopped for a crime that uh, they may or may not commit commit in the future, because all of these issues have disproportionate effects on our Indigenous communities, on our Black communities, on our um, LGBTQ communities, and um, so that's that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that this review of the of the Police Act and is it makes things better and not worse. I'm very fearful that they're going to be made worse. Um, but in terms of predictions, I think that uh, that we're going to see more from uh, more from the NDP in in terms of shedding light on on issues that affect uh, affect families and in fact the affect the, the general population um, you know I, I certainly want to hear a lot more of that um, instead of uh, instead of seeing how you know a lot of these um, a lot of the policies that have been put into place just puts more more money into into the pockets of of corporate shareholders. So that's my hope. Okay. Thank you, Jessica. Matt. Uh, I think my hope is that some of the, uh, the quiet, uh, but optimistic, um, optimistic lights within Alberta, uh, Alberta's economy grow a little bit brighter this year. I'm thinking primarily of uh, some of the, uh, you know, the tech sector, 
some of the investment we've been seeing in recent months um, uh, coming from, uh, you know, from, from, you know, outside of, outside of the, uh, the country to support some of these made in Alberta uh, uh, companies and ideas. Um, I know that, uh, for example, you know, the, the government's attempting to essentially create some brand new industries or incentivize the creation of those. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about hydrogen, uh, geothermal, uh, they even put a, you know, a, a royalty rate on helium. Um, and while these are, you know, in the scale of uh, solutions uh, to the size of the problem that Alberta has right now, um, all of these things could do well next year and probably still wouldn't fix the, uh, some of the, the structural issues that we have. Uh, but my hope is that some of these burgeoning industries actually take off and, uh, you know, produce some jobs, uh, over the long run. Cause I think, you know, Albertans deserve a little bit of optimism in 2021. Um, I guess my, my prediction, uh, will be that. Uh, one year from now, the Alberta party still polls at 7%, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that nobody can really tell us why they've decided to put their vote there. Our, That'll our, be my prediction. Our, our friends at the Alberta party, who we never tire of talking about on this <laughs> podcast. Well, thank, thank you so much, guys. That is it for this episode. That is it for 2020 in uh, on uh, on the Dayberta podcast. It was an absolute thrill to have you both uh, both join us today. A huge thanks to Jessica Littlewood and Matt Solberg for joining us today, for sharing your thoughts and insights uh, about Alberta politics, for humoring me in terms of answering these survey questions. I, I really appreciate it. It was a really great discussion with you guys. Um, and again, so thanks, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, thank you again to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, uh, that the always uh, uh, cheerful and handsome Adam Rosenhart for making this podcast sound so great. You are awesome, Adam. We really appreciate you. Thanks, Dave. Uh, the Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Send us your feedback on Twitter and Instagram at, at Dave Berta or on the Dave Berta Facebook page, or you can email us at podcast at daveberta.ca and we would love it if you could leave a review uh, or a rating wherever you listen to the podcast share with your friends or family um, send it to your work colleagues if you're working from home we, we love it when you share it we will be back in the new year happy christmas happy holidays happy new year please stay safe and healthy and uh, yeah we'll see you all in 2021